really like the last two lines of uh, that hymn, uh, that the, the Lord will continue to speak until the earth is filled with his glory. And um, uh, before we get into today's message, you might want to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. We're going to try to cover the whole chapter uh, today, so that'll be a pretty, pretty broad stroke. Um, and I'm not going to start by reading the whole chapter. What I'm going to do is give an introduction and then kind of chip away at it. Uh, but before we get there, I just wanted to mention that today is uh, what they have come to call Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, when I was in high school, the uh, Supreme Court deemed it fitting in a case called Roe v. Wade to make the killing of innocent babies in the mother's womb legal. That which should have been the safest place on the planet become, became a dangerous chamber of death. And uh, it's been going on. Tens of millions of babies have, have been killed. Innocent babies have been killed. I remember going to a Bible study years ago where people were um, kind of lamenting that. And, you know, somebody made the statement, I don't see how God is not going to judge us for this, uh, to, to which I would hardly agree. And then I th- dawned on me, what would be the worst judgment imaginable upon a people other than the killing of their children? I mean, the judgment is upon us, and we're too stupid to realize it. And we need to repent of that. And I think it, at whatever level that you would want to be involved in that, there are people in our church who've taken the helm in that, you know, uh, Florian Lampkins over here and, and Debbie Levitt and others are kind of going, you know, we need to keep fighting this, this fight. And I, I do realize that within the church today, there is a kind of a, a leftist, woke movement of social justice that we need to be really be aware of. Uh, we might have some ambiguous agreement with certain ethics within those movements, but you should not covenant with those movements that are clearly anti-biblical, clear, some some outspoken, admittedly Marxist people, which is an atheistic, kind of government-centered theological conviction. And we we need to be aware of that. We can't allow ourselves to to covenant with with those people in the name of some kind of cryptic, moral, social pursuit. Nonetheless, Christians and churches should be at the helm of that which is truly just, we, we, we should be speaking. We are called to deliver the innocent. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And we are not to stand by idle while these, these things take place. So I would encourage you, at whatever level you feel that you need to be involved in this, to, uh, to take part in uh, overturning that which is so devastating. Having said that, we're going to look uh, this morning, and I think actually there's some application here as we get into uh, Revelation chapter 8. Like I said, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We'll jump into it um, after a little bit of an introduction. But before that, let's have a time of prayer. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine this eighth chapter of the Revelation, that we would understand what is happening, what you are doing, what what it means to us, what it tells us of you, and what the call is in our lives. Help us, Father, to not look at these words as mere amusement, something that is sensational and yet distant. Help us to recognize that your word sanctifies us. We are to know it. We are to understand it. It should transform us and that we, by extension, should be part of the transformation of this world in which we live. But we recognize this. It all starts with the gospel. 
It all starts with the shed blood of Christ applied to our heart by faith, by which, as we have even sung this morning, we have just been justified, declared righteous in your sight. And may we never stray from that central message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most people will acknowledge that, that any advancement in your character, in your integrity, even in your creativity, uh, your maturity, that, that advancement often comes at a cost. Like things that, that bring you to, to new levels, and I said whether it is a matter of virtue or whether it is a matter of people who write novels or paint paintings and you look at it and then you find the story of great suffering. And the cost is generally some type of great suffering that takes place over and against the massively unbiblical notion that faithful living will immediately render health and wealth and sometime, some type of observable material prosperity history, and Scripture is replete with faithful Christians who died young, penniless, and by the worldly standards, miserably. That that should not shock us. We should not enter into our understanding of the Christian faith as if it's going to be easy. If we read our Bibles at all, we recognize that was not the case for Jesus, nor was it the case for the apostles. It is through great tribulation that you enter into the kingdom of God. You're signing up for difficulty. You're signing up for these types of things that sanctify you. So we should not be put off by this. We should not be shocked by by going, you know what, I thought I was walking with God so well, and yet things are so difficult. It is the... the glorious expectation in the life of the Christian that these things are going to happen. One verse, and I could have picked one of many, Proverbs 17, 3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. I don't, I'll be honest with you, I don't pray to be put through a refining fire. I don't wake up in the morning and the Lord, can you get a lightning bolt real close to me today just so I can come to my senses? But it is through refinement slash suffering that individuals and the communities that those individuals form are in fact sanctified. That things change. Things, Things should be on the rise as a result of this refining work that God does in the lives of his people and in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So we shouldn't bemoan the refinement. We shouldn't bemoan the suffering. We we shouldn't consider it all joy when we encounter these types of things. At the same time, there is a warning that must go forth. Because Jesus, when he taught along these lines, taught that there is a suffering that those who follow him will endure. He called it a pruning in John chapter 15. And yet there are others who are going to experience the same thing, and it doesn't amount to a pruning. It amounts to a consuming. And we have to continually ask ourselves, what side are we on 
of that issue. Are we being refined or are we being judged? Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. In other words, if you're mine, plan on being pruned. Cut away. Things cut away. It hurts. But it may bear more fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, now we're talking about somebody who's outside the faith. He is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned Very severe words from Jesus in terms of those who do not abide in Him. They are not pruned. They are burned. The the same sun that, that, that hardens clay, softens wax, you have the same thing, but it means entirely different things to two different classes of people. All this to say that there is a God in heaven who does not allow people or events in this life to go unaddressed. It's, you're either going to be refined or you're going to be consumed. God's people will be refined. God's enemies will be stopped. Downward moral and spiritual arcs in history will be halted. They will have their moment. The the Lenins and the Stalins and the Maos and the Pol Pots, they will have their moment, but it will not last. God may be patient, and patient almost to the point of apparent inactivity, as we see so often in the Psalms, right? David writing, where are you, Lord? When are you going to, I mean, not only in the Psalms, but in Hosea, when are you going to do something? When will you show up? How long, O Lord, before you take action? But there comes a time. And I would say there comes a time not only on Judgment Day at the end of history, but there comes a time throughout the course of history. We might call it things like a visitation from God or the day of the Lord or those types of terms we see in the Bible that are not always referring to Judgment Day, but they're referring to events throughout the course of history where God says, we're done with this. No more. I'm deposing you as king. I'm ending your nation. We saw, and I don't have, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, and I can't tell you if somebody came up to me and said, well, when the Twin Towers went down, was that a sign of God's judgment or this and that? I, I don't have the prophetic insight to go, yeah, that judgment was a result of this behavior. I, 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 you know, and when people do that, I think they're giving themselves too much credit, just to be honest. I do believe it happens. I just can't say with specificity what judgment is related to what event and when that will happen. But that was not the case with John the Baptist. John the Baptist would prophetically anticipate an event that was about to take place. He knew that a time of visitation was about to happen. He is addressing the nation of Israel and their corporate apostasy. What that means is this nation had turned away from God. That's what apostasy means. They had turned away from God, and he's addressing priests. He's addressing the priests of the true covenant people of God. And what does he call them? You brood of vipers. I mean, can you imagine? And he knew, they knew he was talking about them. You are a group of snakes. 
And then he used another metaphor to describe what was going to happen. Matthew 3.12. He's talking about God. He says, winnowing fork is in his hand. For those of you who don't know what a winnowing fork is, it's like you go into the, into the barn and there's wheat there and you take this fork and you throw it up in the air and it separates the wheat from the chaff. All right? And John is saying of God that his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather up his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There you have another example of the fact that the same thing is happening to two groups, but one is being gathered into the barn and the other is being burned. He would also say the axe is at the root of the tree. I mean, something is imminent. Something is about to take place. This is the context of John's sermon as he begins this new covenant quest as the forerunner of Christ himself. Something was about to happen. We had talked earlier about how B.C. was about to become A.D. Of course, those are the world's terms. Well, we don't use those terms anymore. I do, but, you know, it's B.C.E. and C.E. and all that nonsense. We all know what, what was the changing of the ages revolved around. But we would understand it more this way, I think, biblically. The transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The transition from the types and the shadows to the actual substance. The transition from the promise that God would send a Messiah to God, in fact, sending a Messiah. The, the turning and changing of the ages. This is what John is anticipating in his, in his sermons. Simeon called it this when he saw the baby Jesus. In Luke 2.34, looking at the baby Jesus, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Do you understand what's going on here? Israel, the covenant people of God, Jesus is born into it, and he's going to be the great divider. He said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, and a sword divides. There will be division, Jesus taught. Father against son, mother against daughter, household against household. We talk about Jesus as the Prince of Peace, and I think in the final analysis he is, but that peace comes through the course of division. And Simeon saw that. He's looking at the baby Jesus, and he's going, wow, some heavy things. And he looks at Mary, and he's like, this is going to break your heart. What's going to happen is going to be difficult. You know, Paul uses an interesting term when he writes about the coming of Jesus. In Galatians 4.4, he wrote, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come. What, I'll tell you, there's a lot of speculation as to what that means. What does it mean, the fullness of time? You ever ask yourself, why did, why did God send his son then? Why not a thousand years before? Why not a thousand years after? Why then? What makes that the fullness of time? There's a lot of interesting speculation. I think some of it has merit, some of it not so much. Some people would argue, well, it was the perfect time because at the time, uh, the Greek language made it possible to communicate the Great Commission. I mean, Alexander the Great had instituted, you speak Greek if you want to do any type of commerce. Uh, I think it was nine time zones they spoke Greek. 
So the ability, the ability to communicate was phenomenal. It had never been since the time of Babel. It had never been so good, the ability to communicate. I think there's some merit to that. Others said, well, during the Roman Empire, the Roman postal routes, which we see Revelation went through one, are the Roman roads were perfect for sending out the Great Commission, for sending people out. We had the ability to move in a way we had never moved before. I think all of those things might be the reason, but there's another understanding in the Bible of what it means when we say the fullness. It was being explained to Abram, before he became Abraham, why his people, his descendants, would spend 400 years in slavery. And one of the reasons that the descendants of Abraham would spend 400 years in slavery was because of this. We read in Genesis 15, 16, was because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Some of your versions will say the fullness of the iniquity. And if you look at the Greek Septuagint, and then you look at Paul's use of the word fullness in the New Testament, it's the same root word, this idea of fullness. The fullness of the... In other words, according to God's providential perfect timing... He would not displace the Amorites until their evil had reached its apex, when they were ready to be expelled from the land, and the perfect timing of God would have the delivery of his covenant people from slavery brought into that land. At the same time, those people were expelled because they had reached the fullness of their evil. Abject and utter evil. Well... I want to suggest at some level that we have a similar historical situation during the time of Christ. We had talked earlier about what kind of environment Jesus was born into, right? We, we use the phrase we see in John, he came into his own and his own received him not. And it seems quite mild, but it wasn't mild at all, right? From, the, from his birth, they were trying to kill him. The tragedy, you know, Rachel weeping, the killing of all the children in the region, All his life, they were trying to kill him. And you had not only the religious people do it, but you had a hostile political environment as well. I think we have to recognize how dark it had come. The church, the covenant people of God, Jesus said, they had become a den of thieves. But, you know, people people lament, you know, they move to Texas. And they can't find a church. Although there's plenty of good churches. But during the time of Christ, there was not a good church. That which should have been the church had become a den of thieves. So egregious was the fullness of their sin. Their sin had so metastasized that Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders of that Era said this, that on you will come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of, Zechari- from, of the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. From A to Z, on you, on this generation, all of this is going to fall. Do you understand how dark that environment must have been? I would argue that there's merit in suggesting that the fullness of time meant that Israel had reached the apex of its darkness. I think it can be convincingly argued that religion, at the time of Christ, even the true religion, 
had become its darkest, and the government, the Roman Empire, had become its most beastly. I think the, the Roman government was in control of every part of your life. You didn't do anything. And it got to the point, as we discussed earlier, where if you wanted to even buy or sell or trade or interact, you needed to bow the knee to Caesar. You needed to burn incense to Caesar. You needed to declare, Caesar is Lord. So we have an ungodly religion, and we have a beastly government, and this is the environment into which Christ is born. Now, now we're going to be looking at the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Now the fullness of evil had come in, and something, according to John the Baptist, was going to take place. And it was going to take place, according to John, the apostle, soon. He's writing of things that will soon take place. And the churches who received the revelation, these seven churches, they needed to be prepared. Let's not lose the context of the revelation. It's written to those seven churches about something that's about to happen. And I guess we're going to put it this way. Jesus, in his message to those seven churches, is saying, you need to be with the wheat and not the chaff. The winnowing fork is going to go up. The axe is through to the tree. Where are you going to be when that takes place? And I think it continues to apply throughout the course of history to any people who find themselves in a similar situation. Will we remain faithful when the tide of public opinion turns in a different direction? Or will we just join with them? And we wake up one day and we realize that we're not walking in the faith at all. And there's going to be a visitation coming to us. And it's going to be a matter of consumption and not refinement. How many churches have gone down that road? You talk about a, an epidemic or a pandemic. There's a, there, there's a pandemic of starvation of the Word of God in the Western church. So what is John called to do? John is called to kind of reveal to the church that Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, which would have been laughable at the time from an earthly standpoint, he was called to reveal to the church Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, in his glory, chapter 1. You need to know the glory of the one who's in charge. Then, in chapters 2 and 3, he's talking to those churches. He's going, like, the world is trying to get you to join them. They want you to be woke. They, they are seizing, they are going to tell you that they're seizing the high moral ground, and all you need to do is burn a little incense to Marx. Because we got bigger fish to fry than your doctrine and your theology and your resurrection. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to remain mine. You need to abide you know that term, the perseverance of the saints? You know where that is? It's in the Revelation. That's where that comes from. You need to persevere. And then he begins in chapter 4 to explain the details of this historical judgment upon Israel and then Rome. And keep this in mind, lest we all think this is just 
Some people are like, oh, it's just a history lesson. No, and it's not just about the last generation. The Apostle Paul warned Christians that the same thing that happened to Israel, if, they, if the Christians followed their example of unbelief, would happen to them. Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's going, look at, don't get full of yourselves here. What, what he did to Israel, he'll do to you if you follow their example of unbelief. So there's this continual warning throughout the course of the history of the church to walk in faith. And that's why I think the revelation, the way it's been presented recently, does an injustice to the sanctifying work because we look at it as what's happening way in the future or maybe it's the end of the world or there's going to be nuclear bombs or maybe this guy's the Antichrist. And we, not, we don't realize that we're looking for cannons at the other side of the ocean, not realizing that there's a shotgun down at the back of our own heads. We've got to kind of recognize what's right here that's tempting us to be who God is calling us not to be or not be who God is calling us to be. Well, I, I think that this is happening with such regularity today. Then you'll see the presentation of a scroll. And we're, now, we're getting, now we're getting there. I forgot to bring my watch today. Not gonna, this will not bode well for you. There's a scroll that is presented in chapter 5. And I'd argued, and I think rightfully so, that that scroll contains the, right, that the righteous, authoritative power of Christ as the only one worthy to open the scroll in terms of his judicial and redemptive events that he is going to exact in that generation. That's what the scroll, that scroll contains the things that are about to happen. And then there are seven seals. Remember, there are seven seals on the scroll, and every time a seal is removed, it's a preview of what's inside the scroll, even though the events have not yet happened. Right? So that's where we're at. We're kind of going, all right, we are rece- that, those churches are prophetically receiving this message, and we are at now the seventh seal. Revelation 8, 1 and 2. When he opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. All right, so as Christ is opening the seventh seal, which I would argue foreshadows the judgment about to fall upon apostate Jerusalem, there is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, if you read all of Revelation at once, you have to kind of go, you know, after what must have been like ear-splitting, jubilant mirth of praise, right? In chapters 4 and 5, all of a sudden, you've got this deafening silence. What is that? I mean, a half hour of silence. Dave Kennard, one of our former elder pastors who's gone to be with the Lord, he'd, pre- he'd preach up here. He had long hair, he, was, he had been a rock guy, you know. Very imposing personality. And he had these glasses, and he would walk around, and his hair would be flipping, you know. <laughs> and he would say something, 
And then, without apology, he would just not say anything for a while. And he would, he would look at, I thought he was looking at me through like one of the lenses, you know. <laughs> and the silence was like, and he could pull it off because he was, if you knew him, he was like, I'm kind of a little afraid right now. <laughs> but never for a half hour. Like, he never stood there for a half hour. A half hour of silence on stage could be so discomforting, right? And, and maybe, as some people understand it, it's kind of this intense, calm before the storm, you know, dramatic portrayal. I, 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 there's certainly an aspect of that that is true. But when you add the seven trumpets, now remember, there's 500 allusions in 22 chapters to the Old Testament. When you add the seven trumpets, I don't know what you think of, but if you've gone to Sunday school, those seven trumpets made you think of what? Anybody? Jericho. Right, all of a sudden, you're kind of going, wow, Jericho, the seven, the trumpets. Now, let's add a little bit to this, because in the instruction that God was giving the people to topple the walls of Jericho, in Joshua 6.10, we read this. Now, Joshua had commanded the people saying, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, then you shall shout. So we have the silence and we have the trumpets. But here's what must strike us. What should strike us if we're students of the Old Testament is how Israel, is now in the place of Jericho. The the situation has been reversed. The judgment is now upon them. The same judgment that fell upon the enemy of God's people is now upon the apostate people of God. The trumpets are going to be blown against Jerusalem. Now in the Bible, trumpets can mean any number of things. I made a little list for you if you're interested. It could be part of the liturgy. Wouldn't it be great to have trumpets in our liturgy? Anyway, leave that alone for now. A new king, the warning, the warning of approaching judgment and the call to national repentance. The summoning of the congregation for worship. So not only here during the liturgy, but out front. Dan Lampkins, while he's greeting people, can blow the trumpet as we come into the... No? Okay. <laughs> They're blown at feasts. They're blown at the first day of every month. But here, they seem to indicate the trumpets of judgment. I, don't, I think it's inescapable. But here's something else. So, so here you have something going on, right? You understand that that which fell upon the enemy of God's people is now falling upon the apostate people of God. They have become the enemies of God. It, it, the true church would now be the covenant of people of God. And those who were who said they were Jews but were not, those who were of the synagogue of Satan, they would find themselves on the wrong side of these judgments. They are now Jericho. But here's what I want us to marvel at in terms of the mechanism used by God for all of this to unfold. Then another angel, verses 3 through 5, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar and was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. 
and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Now again, we see unmistakable references to the Old Testament, right? Altars, incense, censers. You kind of got to dig in and go, what do all these things mean? And just, you know, I've kind of decided we're not going to go into the weeds and all the small details about that. It's its own worthy study. And if we want our series on Revelation to go for years and years and years, we could dig into every one of those things. But I just want to have a broad picture here. There are these angels, but then there's another angel with a censer. A censer is what you burn incense in, holds the incense. And he stands at the altar and he offers incense with the prayers of the saints. And we kind of see that in the Bible, this idea of aroma coming before God, you know, that our, we, we, you know, we praise him, we, you know, that, that's what we have to offer, our offering is our praise and so forth. So you have the prayers of the saints with incense being brought, as you, if you will, into the nose of God. Now, what prayers have we seen so far in the Revelation? What we see is the prayers of those under the altar that God would bring His justice, that God would halt the evil. Remember, we were talking about how long. They're going, how long, O Lord, until you stop the killing of your people? We've been martyred. How long are you going to allow this to take place? Well, you have these prayers with the incense brought to God and then thrown to the earth with thunderings, lightnings, noises, earthquake. It's quite the picture. I mean, if you kind of get that in your head of what's going on. The prayers for justice. Lord, stop the evil. I don't know that makes our prayer lists. We, most of us have been raised in such relative freedom that the idea that we're on our knees praying that God would be just and, and depose evil is something we do for other countries. I think we've been revisited a little bit recently, but even still, you know, here we are, nobody's coming in and yet at gunpoint and trying to stop us. But that's not the case, not only historically, it was, it's not the case even globally right now. The, the, the world, we have to recognize this battle, and again, we'll, we won't get to it today because we have the congregational meeting, but next week we'll talk about the millennial views and why post-millennialism, I think, is the right, right way to look at it, and that, in fact, God will win in history and eternity. But we have to recognize that it is a battle, and we're in the battle, and the battle isn't over yet. And history is littered and the world is littered with soul-killing religions and body-killing governments. And the church has a role in terms of dealing with those things. We are not to be passive while all of this is taking place. We can read the Revelation and in large part going, gosh, God is doing some things. But the mechanism by which God has chosen to do these things at very least, includes the prayers of the saints. 
the prayers of the saints are a, a major player in what God is doing. It's almost like, I mean, if I were, you know, if I could draw caricatures or something, it's this idea that you've got the prayers of the saints going up with incense into the nose of God, and then that censer is filled with the wrath of God, and then he takes it and he blasts the earth with the very, it's almost as if the prayers become like this celestial weapon by which God is going to halt the evil that is taking place. We're very much involved. We're not just people who have front row seats, as one of the popular eschatological books seem to indicate. No, it's here I find myself, and I, have, I always qualify my quotes when I don't agree with everybody. Every, you know, if I quote somebody, by the way, it doesn't mean I agree with everything they say. I was talking to my brother-in-law about G.K. Chesterton, who is one of the best people to quote in the world. But I, you know, but I don't agree with a lot of stuff. But when he gets it right, like C.S. Lewis, when they get it right, they get it right better than anybody, like their ability. And I think Chilton got this right when he wrote Church History. And by the way, this might seem obvious to you. I hope it does seem obvious, but we're in a climate even in reform circles where it's not. Church history is the key to world history. When the worshiping assembly calls upon the Lord of the covenant, the world experiences his judgments. History is managed and directed from the altar of incense, which has received the prayers of the church. You talk about ending abortion. One of the primary means by which that is handled is by prayer. If if only, and I I include myself in this number, if I only understood the power of prayer. And I look at a passage like that and I'm like, I I really underestimate the means by which God accomplishes what he's accomplishing. Well, moving on. Earlier we saw how Israel is now in the place of Jericho, right? And Jericho had become really a symbol of God giving his land to his people, this idea that you're my people and I'm going to give you the land, which is really a type of the whole earth, which is really a type of heaven. Now the angels begin to blow their trumpets and we see judgments now in these next, and I'm going to cover a lot real quick, judgments that had, been, that had befallen Egypt in their persecution of the slavery of God's people, now blown against Israel. See, a minute ago we said Israel had become Jericho. Now we're going to see Israel has become Egypt. Let's read on, verses uh, 6 through 12. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the creatures became blood. A third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun was struck. 
a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them was darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And obviously, we can go into a lot of detail, but I, I want to still I want to back up and get the big picture here. We are reading what they call a very apocalyptic language, which is really an interesting term because the word apocalypse means to unveil, but we've kind of like, it's become a liquid word, right? And we use it for like devastation. It's an apocalypse. You know, movies about the apocalypse are movies about a big rock crushing into the earth or something like that. But the word really means to, un- to unveil. Nonetheless, I had mentioned that Israel was now in the place of Jericho. But now, if we look at this, we recognize the resemblance of the judgments that fell upon Egypt are now falling upon apostate Jerusalem. Hail and fire, we read in this passage. Well, that's the seventh plague recorded in Exodus. The sea becoming blood, that's the first plague that befell the Egyptians in Exodus. A third of the sun struck, similar to the ninth plague, which was darkness. So we see the same types of judgments that befell the enemy of God's people, those who had enslaved God's people, now falling upon Israel. The last one that I'll mention, Wormwood, this idea of poisonous water or the the water of gall, as we read in Jeremiah 9.15, though it's not specifically part of the Exodus, it was very much part of the journey in the wilderness when they had reached Marah and they couldn't drink the water because it was bitter, it was poisonous. And what does Moses do? He takes a tree and he throws it into the water and the water that was normally poisonous became sweet and drinkable. Now you have just the opposite happening. Do you see what's going on here? The students of the Bible reading these things are kind of going, you're saying the things that befell the enemy of God's people now befall us. We, we thought we were the covenant people of God. They had deluded themselves into thinking that they were part of the divine covenant while rejecting the divine son, not realizing until maybe they read this that they, they were going to be the recipients of the divine judgment. It's like he's trying to open their eyes to recognize where are you going to be in all of this? You, you, I mean, how many times do we see in the New Testament Jesus and Paul kind of going, look at, if it wasn't, you know, if, if Sodom saw what you saw, they would have repented. You know, Paul uses the same example. This idea that the very people who seem to be the enemy of God's people, I mean, in Galatians, he talks about the son of the slave woman. He's like, you know, the current day Israel, they're the, son, they're the son of the slave woman. That would have been fighting words for the Jew of that day, of that age. What's going on here? What's going on here is that God is not going to remain neutral in the affairs of man. And, and we're, not, we're not to remain neutral either. We might, we might de- deceive ourselves with a myth of neutrality, because we don't want to be a troublemaker. 
And believe me, I mean, as a member of our presbytery, it's always, I'm always going, should I say this or not say this? Because I don't want to be a troublemaker. But, you know, I mean, it's the old saying, whoever said it, Lincoln, I think, but somebody before him, you know, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in times of conflict remain neutral. There is no neutrality. There is a promise made to the church. And the promise made to the church is that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is going, I'm watching out for my church. I'm watching out for that which is good and right and true and redemptive and beautiful and light. And you need to be part of that movement. You need to be part of that. You need to be part of that kingdom. And this promise goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where the promise made to Abraham was, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. I think it's a big mistake to apply that to the nation of Israel today. I think it's applied to the God's covenant people. And they're the ones who need to, to recognize that I need, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about being on the right side of history. And I'm not against that. But if you're on the right side of history, you're going to end up on the right side of eternity, which is even more important. And if you're on the wrong side of history, you're going to be on the wrong side of eternity. Talk about social justice and whatever your you know, convictions are in terms of where this world should go or how you should lead your life. You're either walking in light or you're walking in darkness. You're either walking in one direction or you're walking in the other direction. And the theme found in the Revelation is you need to remain faithful. You need to know who your master is. You need to know who your savior is. I showed you, John would say, in chapter 1. He is the savior of the world. He's bringing the world in a certain direction. Are you going to be part of that? Are you going to continually kick at the goads and find yourselves at enmity with the true living God? Well, from a church's perspective, this whole movement is accomplished through the Great Commission, right? We are to love our neighbors. We are to make disciples. We are to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. That's kind of our role in it. Even as I said earlier, we are to pray. But from a divine perspective, from God's perspective, God will providentially bring His judgments upon evil. It will happen. And we are called to pray toward that end. I guess one of the scariest things for me as an elder, for me as a pastor, is for us to have a church full of people who on that final day would look at Jesus and say, did we not do this Did we not feed? Did we not heal? Did we not deliver, exercise demons? And have him say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawless one. And that is a real danger. That is a real danger not only in the world, but in the church today. As I had said, the very people who were receiving this had deluded themselves into thinking they had divine favor while rejecting a divine Savior. And they were going to be on the wrong side of the divine judgments. Where are you? I mean, don't think because you're sitting in this room that somehow, you know, that you're excluded. Keep in mind, the Revelation wasn't written, you know, to the mall in, you know, in Sardis. It was written to the church. It's, the message is for me. The message is for you. 
You need to persevere. You need to be faithful. Your faith needs to be followed by faithfulness. Well, I think it also, and I, again, I don't have time to get into all this. I'm just going to gloss over it. I think it's also helpful to recognize, because we talked about mountains falling into the sea and stars falling from heaven and all that stuff. And obviously, people make a big deal about that in terms of the end of the world. I don't think he's talking about the end of the world. If you have the notes, you'll see numerous references in the Old Testament where mountains are referring to nations. It could be, I think it could be argued that when Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, fall into the sea, that he was probably talking about you know, Mount Sinai. He was talking about Zion. He's talking about this old covenant mountain, which was that, that nation. And also the failing solar system, right? Stars falling and the moon turning to blood and the sun turning black. If you, if you do your Old Testament study, you'll recognize that that is the kind of language that is used to describe one nation decimating another nation. But we, I mean, I know we want to get all sensational about it and make movies about it, but that's what's going on. Now, let me, let me augment that point a little bit as we wrap it up. Because what you saw here, as I was reading this, was a repetitious one-third, right? One-third of this, one-third of that, one-third of this, one-third of that. Why that? Interestingly, just so you know, all the grass is burned up, but in chapter 9, there's grass again. Which means that John doesn't seem to be constrained by kind of the free use of the metaphors. If the grass is gone, it's gone. I mean, unless, I guess somebody could say, well, it regrew, you know, and, and what have you. But I think that's a strained exegesis. We'll just put it that way. But why the reference to one-third? One thing we should know when we look at the one-third is this is not the final judgment. The final judgment isn't one-third. If this is the new heavens and the new earth, it's total. It's not a third. It's, it's three-thirds. So right away, we should be aware of the fact that this, can't, this just can't seem to be talking about the end of the world. We also need to be reminded of this. That Remember a minute ago I said Paul, Jesus and Paul would compare Israel to Sodom. Paul does it in Romans chapter 9. Jesus does, Jesus does it early in the Gospels. All right, so he's kind of going, look at you guys, if it was, Paul says, if it wasn't for the seed, you guys would end up just like Sodom and Gomorrah in, in Romans chapter 9. If it wasn't for Christ, you guys would end up just like Sodom. What happened to Sodom? Was a, was a third of Sodom left? No. Sodom is entirely annihilated, but the Apostle Paul goes out of his way to explain that the decimation of Israel would not be total. They, that nation would continue. And I think that's the way we need to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Not that by virtue of their ethnicity they have favor with God, but by virtue of God's love and God's patience, they as a people would not be entirely eradicated the way the Amorites were and the way the Sodomites were. That they continued, and they did continue. There would be a remnant, right? A remnant. Paul's kind of going, well, you know, you, God is not done. There's a remnant. Isaiah uses the image of a stump. And we opened that in our call to worship today. But just so you get the idea, Isaiah 11.1, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This idea that Israel is now cut down to a stump. 
and it, it, it regrows. And not to get too far into eschatology here, it regrows and Gentiles are grafted in. And the Jews who had walked away could be regrafted in. And you've got this stump now growing, this tree that is growing. And you and I were part of that. But it starts with the pruning. Do you understand what's going on in the Revelation? It starts with the pruning. It starts with this nation has become so apostate that it needs to be cut down to almost nothing. And then it will be regrown according to the new covenant. And I know, again, I'm wrapping it up, more or less. Um, But there's a lot of talk about Israel if you talk in end times issues, especially if you talk to dispensationalists, you know, Israel's a big player. And I think that dispensationalists have it entirely wrong. But I think a lot of people in the reform community also kind of miss the fact that there is a promise regarding the nation of Israel, uh, not really the nation of Israel, but to Jews. Matter of fact, in our catechism, question 191, when we are told how we should pray, among that in the answer is that the gospel propagated throughout the whole world, the Jews called. In other words, and I agree with them, the reformers understood Romans 9, 10, 11 in such a way that there was going to be, either throughout the course of history or massively at the end of history, a mass conversion of those who were Jewish to the Christian faith. And I think that I think instead of going to Israel on a junket to join hands with our fellow brothers who are Jews, we need to go there evangelistically and share the gospel. And the last thing in the world you want to do is make a person feel comfortable before God based upon their ethnicity. That's a huge mistake. Finally, this reference to one-third, even though, as I said, it excludes the final judgment, it reveals that God is not totally annihilating Israel. But again, going into the Old Testament, what it, what, we, what it does is it beckons us to the inheritance laws found in Deuteronomy 21, where the rightful heir receives two-thirds of the inheritance. So it's not just a number that he grabbed out of his hat. Right? If you read the Old Testament, there's this idea that you have, not to get into the details, I'll just say that you can do your own research, but it's Deuteronomy 21, 16, and 17, that the rightful heir receives two-thirds and the other one-third. So you have that division there. All right, and we finish up, and I'm not going to go into detail on verse 13. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So something very intense is about to happen in chapter 9 where it's like it it has its own announcement at the end of chapter 8. And we'll get to that next time. But I I just have to ask you, what's your takeaway here? I mean, I hope, first and foremost, your takeaway is the person and work of Christ must be front and center. That, that he is the one who will keep me from being the chaff. He is the, I must abide in him. I must trust in him. I must follow him. You, I hope you realize this. There is a battle for the souls of people. There is a battle for your soul. I hope that you don't view yourself as so insignificant that you're thinking, well, who would want my soul? Somebody wants your soul. 
Who owns it? There's a battle taking place. And whether it's a false religion or whether it's a beastly government saying, look, at just, you know, what was the thing? Have a margarita and do your Stairmaster and don't worry about it. We got you covered. I, I don't want the government to have me covered. I mean, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust in a religion that demands everything and offers nothing? Are you going to trust in a massive government who's promising you health and wealth and food and, and, and cell phones and they don't even know your name? Or are you going to trust in a Savior who emptied Himself of all things that you might gain all things? Who has your name upon Him and His name is upon you? Who died that you might live? Who are you going to trust in because the central message throughout the course of this entire revelation is trust and obey. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to be wise to those elements by which we are surrounded of darkness that would seek to win our souls, that would want our allegiance. We do pray that we would be a people that would, in fact, because of the great grace that has been bestowed upon us by the blood of Christ, ever pray that justice would come upon the world, that, Father, that you would make the mountains of arrogance low and the valleys of indifference high, and that, Father, that we would see the righteousness of God cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.